Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin. And I'm Will Lentz. And we are your hosts. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to have Nick Zaleski here to talk all about orgasmic meditation practice. Uh, but before we get into the episode, this is actually a rebroadcast. Um, we initially put this out, gosh, I think like a year ago, and it was incredibly impactful and wonderful. Um, Nick is an inspirational person and she actually reached out uh, at the beginning of quarantine because she was posting an article about having an abortion and the fact that um, because of COVID, all of these abortion clinics had closed and receiving that service had been, it was made very, very difficult. And so she wrote about the experience and she was really worried about backlash and was already getting um, a lot of um yeah pretty nasty backlash and so we took everything down so that we didn't add fuel to the fire um and so we're excited to release this again but but more so just to even talk about first of all how awesome she is for for taking that vulnerable step and for standing for women's rights and a a woman's right to choose but also like how the fuck are we still here (laughs) like it's mind-blowing to me to be perfectly frank yeah I don't know. I think I think both you and I live in Los Angeles, although I'm not there right now. And right. I think it's very uh, it, oftentimes you can be like, oh, everything we're making so much progress and it's just great. And then uh, <laughs> and then you explore a little bit outside or something like this happens. And it's kind of a lightning rod for all the people out there that uh, are very regressive and still very backwards in their thinking. And sure. uh, and it just yeah, it's a shock. Yeah, um, the article is awesome. We're going to include it in the show notes, um, so please read it. And um, yeah, continue having this conversation because, you know, women's health care, gynecological care, access to um, abortion and to reproductive rights um, and health care is fundamentally important uh and and is something that we should all be fighting for and you know i understand that this has become a politicized issue uh which is actually a more recent development um but yeah Anyways, I think that uh, she is a hero i'm very excited to share this episode um orgasmic meditation is fucking rad and um is a cool thing to explore particularly in quarantine i know that there are online offerings um and it, it you know it is uh, an opportunity for clitoris having people to um explore pleasure uh in a safe non-sexual way um and uh you know talk about how to to receive pleasure before you know, what we consider orgasm or climax and sort of play in this space, um, uh, this like juicy space of, uh, of pleasure um, and, and let that be all that it is. Uh, and so I think that there's like a really cool opportunity now while we have so much time and while we're, we're at home more than we ever have been to take this opportunity to try something new and to empower your vulva and your vagina and for people who are, are being, you know, the other person who is aiding to experience and participate in somebody else's pleasure, which is really um, 
a gift in and of itself. So I think there's a lot to take away from this and uh, I'm really excited for you to listen. Yay! I'm feeling yummy head to toe. You see me. Welcome to Finding My Yum. Uh, today's episode, I'm so excited. We have on Nick Zaleski uh, to talk about her journey and also specifically own practice, which we will talk about what that is. But thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm super excited and grateful to be on. Yeah. And so you have a bunch of titles after your name. You're you're doing a myriad of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm a playwright. I'm a director, a facilitator and cultural activist rooted primarily in the reproductive justice movement. So I do storytelling work um, and work in communities primarily around reproductive health rights and justice issues. And what does that look like um when you work in communities, like, are those workshops? Are they ongoing, um, I don't know, classes or? Yeah, sort of all of the above. So I <laughs> devise original plays, most often about sexual violence prevention um, and abortion access, actually. So two really light topics. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. And then I also consult with reproductive health and rights organizations on storytelling strategies. So I help um, people who are doing legal advocacy work and policy work figure out how to center real people's lived experiences to impact um, the way that they're you know, strategically thinking about um, how they advocate to legislators to make decisions about people's bodies. Uh, you know, from the sort of framework of really believing that we should center people's real uh, sort of needs and uh, stories as that advocacy happens. That's amazing. How did you get involved in that aspect? Or is there a particular group that you work with? Um, yeah, or a- yeah I work sort of all over the country. And I guess um, I work for the Center for Reproductive Rights, um, for Social Movements and Innovation Lab, I'm the co-chair for the board of the Illinois Caucus for Adolescent Health, which is a statewide reproductive justice organization. So lots of different kinds of movement orgs, um, which I came to primarily because I I had been working in youth development for um, uh, young women's leadership spaces. And um, Mm -hmm. the young women that I was working with when I first came into my early organizing days wanted to create workshops and um, spaces for other young women to think about their uh, sexuality and their reproductive health questions. So that's what kind of took me to that issue area and to that movement. And alongside that, I had come from a theater background myself and so was applying theater-based tools in those spaces. Um, And so was, you know, had these kind of early experiences of seeing how theater and performance could really open the door to safer, more accessible, and even pleasurable conversations about um, our bodies and our health. Um, And that's why I kind of came to that intersection then for sort of the the beginning of my career. That's amazing. Um, Well, I'd love to go back a little bit. Were Were you always active sort of in the political sphere or within sex and sexuality? Was that something that was present from a young age or... 
like, did you have an awareness about that as you were younger or was it something you came into at a later age? I would say I didn't have a sort of direct political awakening until after undergrad. Um, But I I definitely saw how arts-based practices could be used for social change in a kind of peripheral way. So I was a dance teacher in high school. You know, I I grew up dancing and then one of my first um, kind of proper jobs was teaching little girls how to dance. And um, definitely in my like early ballet teaching days, saw the ways in which these young women either were coming to the dance class spaces from a, a kind of framework of, uh, of like judging each other and feeling uncomfortable in their own bodies and that kind of like standard, um, you know, uh, thin body like militants that um, you can see in ballet spaces a lot. So they were either coming with right. that or, um, you know, we're coming with a, a real fear of judgment from others. And so the dance spaces that I tried to create then, even in that kind of traditional ballet um, setting and in the studio that I was working in, I was really interested in thinking about how are we talking about celebrating our bodies and, um, and celebrating each other's bodies in their weirdest expressions, not just their sure. most technically excellent ones, right? Um, and yeah. that the dance class then for those girls and then for me at like 16 became a real site of like discovering pleasure, right? Discovering joy and um, like sort of exuberance in our bodies. Um, and that also it was then it kind of by surprise became a place where um, one young woman disclosed that she had an eating disorder, which then sort of triggered a domino effect of other young women talking about their own relationship to eating and they're sort of like you know um what's the opposite of confidence like insecurities their body insecurities um so it also became this incredible kind of site of dialogue um so while that didn't like directly politicize me it did help me to see how dance was the way in to these conversations that were really otherwise like quite difficult to have um, mm-hmm. in an accessible, comfortable, um, and safe way. So that, that was kind of the earliest seed. And then I, I stepped more into my kind of like, um, political identity, I would say when I, um, first came into a movement organization called, um, Sisters Empowering Sisters, which was that young one's leader, leadership space that I mentioned that was really firmly rooted in reproductive justice work. So. I got schooled by a bunch of amazing um, elders in the movement and, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, sort of learned and went from there. Um, all of that is incredible. When you were in high school, it sounds like you were pretty illuminated to the fact that there were so many um, dysfunctional sort of messages and body ideals being thrown at all of us women and men. Um I think I had an awareness around that for sure, but I didn't, I wasn't able to really tackle it at that point. Like it was pretty pervasive and I felt like it was just the norm. So to have that kind of illumination is, it seems pretty striking to me. Um, Did you grow up in a, in like a family where there was a lot of discourse around this or, um, or something like that? Or, or was it just inherent in your nature? That's a great question. I mean, I think that, well, definitely 
my mom was a kind of like no shit broad, you know, like she, it was yeah. really, she lives out loud and she's highly and often uncomfortably extroverted. Um, mm. And so I, I saw her talking about things that would make other people uncomfortable with an ease and a kind of like sense of humor and bravado that um, I think probably actually when I was 15 made me really like uncomfortable and like oh this is so awkward mom but yeah of course <laughs> squirming in your skin <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but now I really see what she was doing what she does do so well which is just um bring light to otherwise kind of like shadowy or or um uncomfortable topics um and I will say that I also just sort of naturally then and probably now to had a real um, sort of defiance against authority um, and, mm-hmm. and just like a kind of uh, baked into my bones had this sense that um, transgression was always healthy. And so I grew up, you know, the four years I spent in high school and the four years I spent in undergrad, like exactly framed the Bush administration. And George Bush, as you may or may not know, had um, implemented absence-only sex education, you know, in 2002. And so the sex ed that I got in high school and all of the dominant cultural conversations about sexuality um, and about pleasure and, and these conversations about just, you know, being authentic and real about our body's desires and needs those were highly discouraged by the federal government, by the school that I went to. And so then kind of by the- Was your school religious or no? No, it wasn't religious, but it was a public school that received absence-only funding, right? As as, um, most were during those years. Um, So, you know, if you graduated at any point in time under the Bush administration, this is the kind of education you were getting unless you went to um, a non-federally funded school. And so- um, yeah, I mean, I have so many memories from those classes, from the very, like, powerful and potent metaphors that abstinence-only education uses. But I think that it just because I had natural defiance baked into me and was quite sexually active during high school, knew okay. <laughs> something wrong with that kind of cultural silence and, um, yeah, had a natural inclination to speak back against it. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean... I always felt a defiance as well, but it was so slight and I had subscribed so um, steadfast to the Disney ideal, I think, of like what relationships look like and what sex looks like. And so, yeah, it's just interesting and amazing to hear that, you know, a kid in high school could have this awareness and be spreading it to other women and already starting that message of body acceptance and awareness and and pleasure for yourself as opposed to, you know, for the male gaze or for somebody else. Hmm. Hmm. Um, That's a lovely reflection. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I'd love to move forward a little bit. So I'd love to talk about this own practice um, because it's the first time that I've heard about it and I I find it absolutely fascinating. So I'd love to have you describe what it is and how you kind of came in contact with it um, because it's so so fascinating and cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so OM 
is a meditation practice that is focused primarily around the clitoris as the highest point of um, potential connection between two people. Um, mm-hmm. And so the way that it works is it is a goalless practice um, that is, is focused on presence and attention as opposed to getting someone to climax. So um, it involves one person, which we call the strokey, laying mm-hmm. down, and one person, which we call the stroker, sitting beside uh, the person with the clitoris who's laying down at the strokey. Um, and the stroker attends to um, the strokey's clitoris for 15 uninterrupted minutes. Um, and by attends to, I mean um, applies light and gentle um, strokes uh, and asks for adjustments to um, keep the strokey um, in what we call orgasm, which is different um, in the own work than the dominant cultural like language sort of names orgasm. So often mm-hmm. we think of orgasm as that kind of like um, masculine in the energetic sense of that word, um, uh, linear, forward moving, all of the blood comes to one point and then um, uh, comes to a, a sort of pinnacle and um, sort mm-hmm. of eruption and then all sensation falls off immediately, right? Like that's our, our general understanding of what orgasm can mean. Right, um, yeah. And in the homework, we call that climax, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so climax is what we associate with the sort of masculine um, version of, again, all sensation coming to one point and then dropping off. And orgasm, instead, we associate with a more feminine model of pleasure. And it is winding and um, surprising. It has peaks and valleys and ebbs and flows, um, and it is sustainable for however long um, the person who's experiencing orgasm um, sort of wants to stay, stay in it. And so in the own practice, the, the sort of idea is to stay in orgasm for 15 uninterrupted minutes. Is there a definition, is orgasm just like, a, like in a pleasurable state then? In, or is it just, yeah. Yeah, of like highly elevated sensation, right? It's, okay. I mean, my, my, my shorthand for it is like, it's bliss, Gary. <laughs> right? So, it's a what? Right, um, it's, it's bliss. Okay. Yeah, so um, so you can imagine it, it's like, uh, it's about coming, you know, close to the point of climax, but not going over, right? Not okay. saying that I have mm-hmm. to like go to that point and let all sensation fall off, but actually that I can stay with the sensation. And part of what I talk about all the time when I coach on to others and um, when you know I'm supporting new folks and coming into the practice is that it's really difficult in our culture to practice not going over in sensation, right? Especially for those of us who are so starved for climax in our lives, right? Like if we're not getting it that often, because yeah, it feels like we're yeah. getting anywhere near it. We, we like want to pull for it so much, right? We want to like feel that highest state of elevated sensation as opposed to right. being, I can stay in this place of elevation without tipping all the way over. 
And then for those of us who are creatives or, or who are wanting to put um, that really powerful energy to work in any way, I love to say OM in the morning because you can build up all of that really juicy, yummy electricity and that like state of orgasm. And then mm-hmm. truly, like even after the session has ended, the 15 minutes are over, the stroker has left, and the strokey goes on her way or their way. Um, the strokey then can put all of that energy to use. So I often will like, if I own in the morning, then go right to my writing practice. And I'm still sort mm-hmm. of in that state of kind of like delicious afterglow, right? I'm still in my orgasm in some way. And that makes me more right. creative. It makes me more present to what um, is available in front of me in terms of like colors, textures, sounds, right? It makes me more mm-hmm. sensitive to the world in front of me. Um, and it, and it, it, it makes for better writing in the end. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that we're so quick to climax and we're starved for it in our culture. Also, what comes up for me is especially when I've experienced partner engagement, you know, in sex or any kind of play like that, it it almost feels like, at least in my experience, and I think the partners that I've chosen, that it needs to happen quickly. Otherwise, it won't happen. And it won't, like, it's because it's not a priority that it's, like, this rush to, like, okay, well, like, let's get this done because it needs to before, like, you know, we have, like, penetrative sex or something like that because that, um, yeah, so because that becomes then the focus and, and we lose track of anything else that, like, I'm interested in. Um, and not all always the case, but it definitely, like, that's been my sort of viewpoint into sex um, is that more, like, masculine type of, um, you know, well, totally. connection yeah, to I mean, it. I, yeah, that really resonates for me. And, and thank you for sharing that because I, I think the whole – all of the scripts that we get about how to be sexual with each other, right, in the media and otherwise, mm-hmm. right, and even in our friend groups and, like, communities, all of those scripts are, are, are primarily, like, um, male uh, climax, you know, masculine climax focused, right? They are about yeah. penetrative sex and ejaculation being the end of sex. Right. right. Yeah. Like and, period. And I'm not even talking about just in, in heterosexual relationships. I mean, all relationships receive this kind of programming, right? Mm-hmm. That there has to be some sense of climax for the sexual act to end. Um, yeah. And OM is really about unprogramming a lot of the cultural garbage <laughs> that we get around our pleasure and our sexuality um, and mm-hmm. staying with the feeling without it having to do anything and without it having to be sexual. So that's one of, you know, the things that we really try to kind of have a home about OM is that it's, it, it's not sex and it's not foreplay. So the, the, the two people who practice it together um, don't have to have any kind of attraction to one another. Um, they, they certainly, if they're partners, we encourage having a really separate own practice from any kind of sexual, uh, engagement with one another. 
And that's because mm. it being a practice that is just focused on feeling pleasure for pleasure's sake and not mm-hmm. having to attach it to romantic attraction or emotional sort of weight and attachment is um, can be really, really, really incredible, especially, especially again, for the, you know, from the strokey side or from the side of the person with a clitoris, like, in, in terms of what mm-hmm. that means for re- reclaiming my pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about it that's very sterile, right? Like there's um, like a yoga mat and gloves um, and like the whole environment is not catered towards um, any kind of sexual connection or anything. It's, it is it is sterile, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And all of those sterile elements. So, you know, you were talking about the yoga mat. We build something that we call the nest, which is what the strokey lays down in. So that's a yoga mat with a pillow for um, her or their head, pillows for both sides of the legs, um, a washcloth that goes underneath the butt, right? Because you do practice Mm. your pants on because the clitoris is exposed. Um, So we put a washcloth underneath the butt. And then the person who is stroking the clitoris, wears a pair of gloves and um, we do that for two reasons one is because it just actually is more hygienic and safe um, so that one of the things that might be going through somebody's head as they're like receiving pleasure receiving strokes is like oh my god has the person washed their hands like you know did they just eat like what that there are all right. these tiny little messages that then distract us from being in our full bliss right so we want to remove right. all of those messages as much as possible. So the gloves go on, um, one, to get rid of some of those messages, and two, to cue, this is not something we often use during sex. So a lot of people do use gloves for digital sex, right? And that's super cool, too. But um, in a lot of relationships, we don't see rubber gloves very present in the sexual space. And so right. that can cue, this is a different practice entirely. And as you said, it can kind of up the sterility of the situation. And then right. um, it's, it's also what we call, it's one of the many elements that does um, something called safe porting for the person who's receiving the practice. So, um, and I shouldn't actually say the person who's receiving the practice because both people are receiving huge benefits from the practice and we can talk about what both of those are, but um, mm-hmm. the person who's laying down needs cues to feel fully safe to do this kind of weird thing, which sometimes means like inviting a stranger into your home to touch your clitoris, which is literally the thing that we are taught from very young ages not to do. And yet it happens to be one of the safest things in the world in this practice. Um, But Mm -hmm. all of this stuff, like the gloves, the nest, the um, step-by-step process and the things that the stroker says during it, all of those are meant to cue routine for the person who's receiving, right? They are, so the stroker, whether or not the stroker is a man, a woman, a non-binary person, or person of any any gender, they are holding down what we call a masculine presence in that space Mm. so that the feminine or the person with the clitoris can be fully expressed, right? So the, the masculine is holding down, here are all of the things that I'm gonna say to make you feel super safe and grounded and um, supported in this practice. So that the feminine can just be in her total wild bliss and her own 
experience an orgasm. And that's a, that's a, it's a tenet from Tantra that we practice a lot in that work too, which there are, you know, a lot of connections and overlaps with the Ohm stuff. But it's like, mm-hmm. what is possible for the feminine in terms of a full expression of its own, like, wildness and bloom and blossom when the masculine can really hold a strong container? Um, yeah, it, that's what, what gets expressed in the Ohm practice. Is there a training that the stroker, like, I guess either person goes through in order to participate, or is it just a conversation before of this is our goal, this is what's going to happen, and then an allowance of, like, both people's experience? Yeah, that's a great question. There is lots of training that's offered on OM. Um in, you know, all over the country, there are some cities that have really strong and vibrant home communities where there are lots mm. of coaches like me. Um, and those coaches do one-on-one sessions, sometimes do group classes. So we teach group classes in Chicago and then in LA, I do some individual coaching and stuff like that. So there's lots of different ways to do it, but usually no one will own, and, and in particular, no one will stroke without having gone to some kind of training first. So okay. we do discourage the person who is the strokey or who, you know, has the clitoris to be the one who's like teaching the stroker because that also then can sort of get her into her head a little bit, right? It can get her into her programming about like uh, this person having to get it right and all of this, right. you know, sort of garbage. So. We encourage, like, people to get the training, especially if couples are doing it and couples want to experiment. We encourage the couple to go together to a coach or to a class. Um, But, yeah, that generally people do get trained in advance. And what does the training look like then? Lots of different models for that. So the two that I work most regularly with is um, in the group classes, we do, we, you know, we start with some breath work um, from a Kundalini tradition, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we teach to a group of usually in between like 10 and 20 people, the basic tenets of OM. So we talk about goallessness, which I mentioned. We talk about mm-hmm. climax versus orgasm, right? We talk about the, the um, ideas and the sort of pedagogy behind it. And then mm-hmm. we'll do a live demo, actually. So we'll have oh, somebody okay. who is an experienced practitioner take her pants off in front of the room and lay down. Um, and someone who's an experienced stroker sit next to her and talk through the process step by step as she's receiving it. Um, oh, and wow. so that's like okay. the, the introduction of genitals into the room, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and then the introduction of the step-by-step process. So that live demo will happen. And then generally what we do there is we'll break. So we'll say, okay, we're going to take a break now. And anyone who wants to can stay and can ask for an OM. So for the the first step of every OM practice is asking for someone to OM, right? So we need to get consent before any kind of, you know, um, contact with genitals happens. And so mm-hmm. people who are in the training then can look to each other and can say, hi, would you like to own, right? And often these are total strangers to each other. And then we set up wow. a nest for each person and then each person will have an own. And then we circle back up. Everybody shares one, what we call a frame, which is a value neutral reflection on something they felt during the practice. So it's not 
Um, oh my God, it was so, it was like a, a beautiful butterfly landed on my heart and started flooding it, right? Mm-hmm. No poetry. Mm-hmm. It's just, I felt mm-hmm. um, a warm buzzing sensation on the left part of my labia. And then the stroker will say something like, I felt um, my heartbeat in my, uh, the tip of my fingertip, right? Mm-hmm. Some value neutral thing, just about a sensation that they were experiencing. And part of the magic of that is noticing, wow, I rarely actually pay enough attention to how I feel like to the physical yeah. like, somatic sensations in my body that I don't even know like what to call them or how to like how to express that right because we have so little practice right. with it so that's how a group training will work and then um, individual coaching which I do is just um, works a little bit differently so either I can you know I will work with um, one person on figuring out what their goals are for the practice and, and sort of talking them through how to meet those goals. Um, again, the tenets of the practice itself, and then um, often we'll connect them to own communities in their city to get them home. Amazing. And then you mentioned uh, that both the stroker and the strokey um, have takeaways and ideas of, you know, what the experience can lead to or open up. Um, can you expand on that? Yeah. So um, the strokey, I'll do that because that's the rule. So I'm trained as both, by the way. So I okay. um, can get a stroker and a strokey, but I most often am a strokey because um, mm-hmm. that's just total bliss. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, be- the benefits of the strokey are, um, you know, some of that reclaiming our pleasure for ourselves as I mentioned, not having to attach um, the um, experience of orgasm to one person, right, or um, to the all of the uh, sort of emotional connections of it, it being located in one person, but just noticing like how much pleasure um, we can hold on to in our own lives and for ourselves. Um, uh, there are people who are strokies experience an increase in, again, sensitivity in, in all of their sensory sort of um, experiences. So, uh, you know, can smell more, taste more, see more, right? That the world just kind of comes into technicolor a little bit in this right. practice. Yeah, it comes alive. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes alive, right? Um, well, because it's almost like you're tapping into, like, life force. Yes. That mm-hmm. is exactly it, right? That, like, mm-hmm. we're unlocking all of these channels um, of electricity in ourselves, and that stuff is really, um, it, like, wants to flow through us, and we often, you know, it's like when people start exercising for the first time, like, um, how much stuff can get locked up in our body in ways that we don't even know, and for those of us who aren't regularly just, like, in our orgasm um, without it having to mean a bunch of stuff or without us having to work super hard for it or... Um, or without us having to reciprocate, right, which is its right. own programming, mm-hmm. um, that that can be really medicinal to, um, yeah, to to keep that light on, right, to turn that light on. Yeah, that reciprocity part really resonates with me. There is something, uh, I don't know, exhilarating or sounds exhilarating about not feeling obligated to reciprocate or feeling like you're in debt now or owe something. Totally. It's so deep, Jerry. Yeah, it's, it's really the, 
thing that I would say is the most shocking to uh, women and strokees about this practice, and the thing that often um, people don't believe me about, <laughs> is that you yeah. just lay down, and for 15 minutes you get to be on full receive. And then you sit up, you observe one thing that happened value neutral in your body, and then you leave, or they leave. And no, in fact, reciprocity is not allowed. So you don't sit up and then, you know, you can jump right into bed together or sit up and, you know, offer them a hand job, right? Right, right, right. actually enough that your pleasure in that moment and the connection that the stroker experienced through witnessing your pleasure is enough. Like that's, that's a really yeah. it's a profound experience, right? And to do that over and over and over and over again. So, you know, we say um with regularity and that's how you really feel the benefits. It's not like if you just own once, like everything, your whole life changes. But if you own with regularity, it, it's amazing sure. the messages that start to undo, you know, about what we owe people yeah. when they give us pleasure. Um, and... And, and I'd say this is where, you know, the other, I think, deep benefit of the own practice in particular for strokies, though also for strokers, is related to trauma release, right? So yeah, that I if, wanted to touch on that piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that if the site of trespass is in the sort of general area, right, like if, if um, someone has been harmed in that one, like, most sacred space, mm-hmm. um, it, it, that going to that spot to heal is pretty profound, right? And that creating mm-hmm. a safe container, so safe that the person who, again, is, you know, sort of receiving the practice knows every single step of how things are going to go down and no transgression will happen, that that can be tremendously um, transformative and rewiring for um, strokies. And, you know, I'll say this being someone who survived sexual assault myself, I I did a lot of work on my own healing um, before I met the own practice. Um, in spiritual spaces, I, I did a lot of, you know, work trying to heal from sexual trauma in, um, in some therapeutic spaces, right, in group spaces, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it really wasn't until I found OM that my body was able to sort of move from let go of some of the, um, some of the ways in which it was holding on to my trauma. Mm. That's so amazing. that's pretty, I think, profound as, as one of the benefits yeah. of the practice for the strokies. And I, and I think for the strokers, two strokers who've experienced um, trauma in the sexual space in any way, contributing to that safe container and all of the exquisite communication that OM teaches. So, mm-hmm. you know, what it teaches about consent, what it teaches about giving adjustments, um, and and gracefully accepting adjustments, right? So when mm-hmm. a strokey is laying down, if, if she's feeling like, oh, they're not quite on the spot, right, they can say, um, 
you know, can you try some upstrokes a little bit faster? Can you move down into the left? Um, come up on top of my clitoris. Um, I'd like some downstrokes now, right? So there are all of these sort of minor adjustments that can be made um, that both mm -hmm. train somebody to know their body really well and then also train the stroker to, like, know what it feels like to get adjustments in that space, which is totally amazing. And then that increases listening, sensitivity, attunement for the strokers, which then, by the way, leads to, like, a better sex life outside of the own practice. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Um, well, so where can people find um, OM practitioners or spaces where um, this is practiced and get involved if they're looking for it or find you? Because you come to L.A., right? You're in Chicago and Los Angeles? Yeah, so I have been splitting time between Chicago and L.A. for the past five years, but I'm actually about to move to San Francisco. So oh, <laughs> I will be okay. <laughs> locations a little bit. Um, and, yeah, the, the short answer is that there's online um, spaces that are um, good to learn about. So One Taste is an organization that has been training and teaching on the work for the past few years. And... People have lots of different perspectives on them as a company. I did their coaching program and had a really had a, quite a positive experience with their coaching program. Um, but totally, mm -hmm. I get some of the critique on them as well. Um, but they have a lot of really awesome materials available for on, um, uh, free uh, online. So um, again, that that company is One Taste, and then um, it's there called are major, One One What One Taste Taste like one um, Taste. taste taste the rainbow <laughs> got it <laughs> yeah yeah and they're awesome um and then yeah again there are coaches in lots of cities um that are connected through like a sort of coaching hub that one taste does and then also um lots of word of mouth coaching situations so i as well as the person who i teach with in chicago um who's a kundalini teacher named guna sean we both teach it really specifically from a trauma lens, which is very different mm. from how a lot of one taste coaches train in it. Um, they come more from a desire perspective, neither is good nor bad. Um, but the, the sort of trauma approach, I think, keeps the practice really, really pristine and really focused on the strokey, actually. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And and so, yeah, people, you know, people, of course, can find coaches through each city's um, Facebook group, so every major city has a um, like an own Facebook sort of channel, um, and so okay. can find out about those through One Taste, through me. Um, yeah, there are usually like gatekeeper gatekeepers in each city who can say like, oh, here's the, you know, here's the Facebook channel, here's how you can get Omen. But usually, the, here's the shorter answer: it's like finding a coach to do one to three sessions just to start is a really, really great way to get going. And then they can usually unlock access to like, here's where the community is. Here's how you ask for an ohm. Here's who you should connect with and so on. Got it, got it, got it. And then how do people find you if they would like to? Yeah, so I'm, certainly people can find me on Instagram at nicklins, N-I-K-L-Y-N-Z. Um, and then my website is just my first and last name.com. So it's Nick. Zaleski.com. Awesome. And we will put that in the show notes. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for taking time to 
to talk about this and share your experience and um, share this practice. It's definitely like something I've never heard of. So it's it's so cool that I don't know that this is even like available and that we're able to explore pleasure in these ways that haven't I don't think, you know, at least um, publicized been available um, previously from from what I can understand. <laughs> mm. yeah right on yeah. thanks so much Jerry for the conversation yeah. too. it's really nice to reflect with you and um, talk about this practice which I love so much yay yay mm. um, well thank you yeah, yeah enjoy the rest yeah. of your night oh boy oh my god I yeah oh man I'm just like so grateful it's cool looking back on interviews that I did you know, kind of at the beginning of this journey and and still seeing like how impactful they are and revisiting different concepts and things that maybe I haven't thought about in a while and like mind-blowing. I mean, she's just wonderful. So uh, I'm really grateful that she's able to come on and that we can share it again now. Yeah, and I think it's cool because I think, like you said, uh, even revisiting, it's like you pick up on more stuff that you, you might have missed the first time around. Um, and, you know, I think... Anyone that checked it out the first time, it's a great time to check it out again. So, <laughs> which I yeah, guess you already did if you heard this part of the podcast. <laughs> That's true. So. You've made it here, and we're really excited that you're here. Uh, um, please follow us on social media at Finding My Yum Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we post behind the scenes and little clips, uh, and we would love for you to be a part of our community. You can email us at findingmyyum at gmail.com. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share with friends. In fact, right now, Jerry's going to tell you how many friends to share it with. Jerry, how many friends this week? 81. 81 friends. Nine share with 81 squared. friends. Oh, nine squared. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nine for yeah. September. Yeah. Oh, I didn't Which even. we're almost at, we're I think, as of releasing. <laughs> So get ready for September. Um, and pumpkin spice. Oh, my God. There's all fall things are already out. And I'm excited. Um, <laughs> anyways, yes. Uh, please uh, join. Let us know who you'd like to hear from, other guests, other topics. Uh, we're super open to uh, referrals and suggestions. We've gotten several guests, actually, from um, many of your suggestions. And it always feels exciting. So please reach out. And have a good week. Stay yummy. Stay safe. Stay healthy.